it's good to be um, together <laughs> in this limited way, worshiping our Savior together. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we come wanting to know you, wanting to know your Son, wanting to experience and live out the grace that has been afforded to us by faith in your Son, the Messiah. Father, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be like him, that we would fulfill our designed purpose to put your glory and your image on display. That the world would know that you are God because of us. So God, we pray as your son taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, may your name be made holy. May your kingdom come and your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sin, our iniquity, and our trespass. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We come back uh, to Mark, Mark's gospel this morning, picking up where we left off in chapter 3. But before we, we get to chapter 4, we've got to look back at the beginning. Remember, as we talked about last week, that beginning phrase in Mark's gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Listen to it again. The beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. The gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. And last week we asked the question, what sort of Son of God is Jesus? Mark's not messing around here with his opening. He wants his readers to know, look, Jesus is the Son of God, so deal with it. Agree or disagree, you, we know where Mark stands on this issue. And rightly last week, Pastor T reminded us, look, saints, the demons believed, but they did not worship. So the question is, do you believe? Do you worship? Now, on that theme, what's far clearer to the ancient reader than it is to us today is that the Son of God, this Son of God label, was in their world and for generations previous, a title almost exclusively reserved for a king or his prince. So if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then we are committing ourselves to him as our king. Now, notice Jesus' opening words in the Gospel of Mark. 
his opening declaration. He says, Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Hold on. All those words, I think, are familiar to us. But listen again. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. Repent and believe the good news. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Wait, maybe you're you're asking the question that I asked some years ago. Repent and believe the gospel. I thought the gospel was that Jesus died and rose to forgive our sins. But in Mark 1, he hasn't done that yet. For someone like me growing up in suburban American evangelicalism, which loves to turn the gospel into an individualized spirituality, an individualized piety, a Jesus and me sort of movement, this declaration comes as a shot across my like philosophical bow. Jesus is declaring in, his, in the very start of his ministry, that the long-awaited kingdom, which Israel had been waiting for since Solomon, since Moses, since the garden, has arrived right then, right there in the person of Jesus, the king. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection is going to be the climax of that kingdom work this side of the second coming, as we know. But it isn't the only kingdom work. It's not the only work of Jesus that matters. God's kingdom has come. God's will is being done on earth as in heaven. And saints, it was good news then and it's good news now. Now I know what maybe some of us are thinking or feeling maybe in the back of our minds. This is America. We got rid of the king. We got rid of the king in 1776. I've seen Hamilton. No. And maybe we're tempted to say, look, king, we've got American democracy. This is God's chosen means of government, isn't it? Hmm. Is it? Maybe that's just a piece of imperial propaganda far too long accepted and promoted by the church. Maybe we've been taught that God never wanted Israel to have a king. Deeply misunderstanding Samuel. Totally ignoring God's instructions about kings to Moses. And maybe more sinisterly, uh, implying a rightness or a righteousness to a confederate form of government endemic or a part of our own political and religious history. Look, saints, God's good news is a kingdom and it's King Jesus. It was good news then, it's good news now, and it's what we need for hope and stability and a rightly ordered life in the midst of our broken world. So we ask, How was God's kingdom good news to the people of Israel in Jesus' day? Well, in 586, 587 BC, 
Israel's rebellion against God had hit its climax. For generations, they had embraced the Israelites, claiming God, claiming God as their king, claiming having a temple, doing the rituals, doing the sacrifices, embraced a lifestyle along the lines of what Paul describes in Galatians 5. Embracing sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And God, being patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, is now holding, here in 586, 587, holding Israel accountable to the covenant they made with God and subjecting Israel to the full weight of sanctions prescribed in, in his covenant with Israel in Torah. So Israel lost their nationhood, their independence. They lost their king. They lost their temple when God judged them through the nation of Babylon. Now, in the years after that, again, that's 500, 600 years prior to Jesus, they did return by God's grace to the land that God had given them. They returned to Israel, to the land of Judah. They rebuilt a temple, think Ezra and Nehemiah. But they had no king, they had no independence for by the time of Jesus, they're ruled by Rome. So, for 14 or so generations, they had debated, they had struggled how to fulfill God's command in Deuteronomy 30. Now remember, uh, the, the chapters just preceding Deuteronomy 30 dealt with the blessings and the curses, the rewards of covenant faithfulness, and the discipline that would come for unfaithfulness. It says this, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. The people of Israel, the people that Jesus came to, saw this passage as paramount as vital as their like call in the midst of their exile. 
So they were, Jesus comes to a people desperately trying to obey God's voice in all that he commanded with all their heart and with all their soul so that God would fully restore them. Which they assumed would mean political independence, defeat of the Romans, and a, a, a physical, literal prosperity. So some sought, as we've seen and will continue to see through the gospel, a rigid legal obedience, a rigid commitment to holiness. Others sought, typically alongside a sort of rigid holiness, to seek the kingdom of God through nationalistic violence. Think Joshua. Others sought a different route to fortune, a different route to success. Some sought fortune in, uh, in political convenience. And what's fascinating is that last week we saw Jesus bring all these groups together in his 12 disciples. He says to Matthew, one, uh, whether by choice or by family inheritance or uh, by requirement, caught up in, the, in political convenience, serving Rome. Others, Peter, uh, uh, Simon, uh, I'd make the argument Judas, zealots, those prone to see nationalistic violence as a means of bringing about the realities of the kingdom of God. The other disciples, likely uh, a part of, um, uh, of, of synagogues and, and communities that were seeking to obey the word of God with all their heart and all their soul and all their might. Yet, here is Jesus proclaiming that he is the king who will set the world to rights. He is the one that is fulfilling this mystery that has been on the hearts and minds of the people of God. How is God going to do this? How is he going to bring his people back? How is he going to restore them from the exile that they so rightly deserved? How is he going to express his grace and mercy to his lost and suffering people? And Jesus says, it's right here. I'm the fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in me. So what is this kingdom? Well, we've already been seeing it at work. And it's going to defy not only the expectations, not only the expectations of the disciples, not only the expectations of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Zealots, I think in many ways it's going to defy our expectations as well. So we might summarize um, uh, the kingdom of God in three, three things. When these things come together, we have the reality of the kingdom of God on earth. God's reign, God's kingdom, is found among those who, by grace through faith, have chosen to obey God's commands. Notice what, how Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom 
God's, God, the whole trajectory of God's plan is God's kingdom is coming here. We're not going to it. It's coming here. The resurrection is, is about restoring and renewing right here. Not taking it and bringing the reality of heaven here, not us going somewhere else. And that starts with faith and faithfulness. Now, in the midst of that, second thing we might say about the kingdom of heaven, uh, the kingdom of God, um, uh, is that God's power is manifest in the kingdom of heaven in his, in God's redemptive purpose to heal and to save. So wherever the kingdom of God goes, it brings with it healing, physical, emotional, spiritual, and salvation, faith in Christ. Isn't that what we've been seeing all through Mark? All through the first three chapters? Wherever Jesus goes, people believe in him. Wherever Jesus goes, when he encounters a leper, normal people, normal situation, the kingdom of this world, a leper touches you, you get leprosy. But when a leper touches Jesus, when Jesus touches the leper, Jesus doesn't get leprosy, the leper gets life. The kingdom comes, a kingdom community is infectious with life. A contagious life. That's what the gospel does to community. That's what a kingdom community is like. It's life-giving. It's healing. It's redemptive. That's God's purpose for the community. Third thing is that the kingdom is a kingdom that is devoted to becoming, is a community devoted to becoming disciples of Jesus in the movement to bring God's redemption into the world. So the kingdom, a kingdom community is one who makes disciples, who makes disciples, who makes disciples. And so we saw this in Mark 3, Mark 3.15. Jesus isn't doing it alone. He calls and appoints uh, uh, to himself disciples who become apostles, who are emissaries, ambassadors of his kingdom to a lost and dying world. And, and, and you know, memorably, the end of Matthew's gospel, his, Jesus' final words to his people, all authority has been uh, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So as you open Mark 4, if you'd open Mark 4 with me, what we're going to find is four parables that are going to bring these ideas together. And we're going to, uh, there's, there's four parables. We're going to talk about three of them. One we're going to come back to next week. Um, and we saw last week, okay, like Jesus, uh, Jesus is teaching. He's got crowds around him. His family comes. They think maybe he's lost his mind. Maybe something's not okay. They're concerned about him. And word comes to Jesus. Jesus, your family is here to see you. They're looking for you. They, like, they want you. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, look, my family are those who believe in me, those who follow me. So here Jesus redefines 
family, and even nation around those who follow him. So now here in Mark 4, Jesus is going to use parables to ask us, will we follow him? What kind of followers are we going to be? And then he's going he's to clarify for us, if you follow me, you're signing up for a certain sort of kingdom. So, first question, are we following Jesus? Second question, are we willing to sign up for this sort of kingdom? Now, Mark 4, it's long. It's, uh, we're going we're gonna to deal with some 30, 34 verses today. But I want to jump to the middle for a second. Jesus is going to give us what we call the parable of the sower. I'm going to argue that that's the wrong title. That's a title we gave it uh, much, much later. Better, parable of the soils or the parable of the hearers. But Jesus gives this parable to his disciples. And then his disciples stop him. And there's a side conversation. They say, Jesus, um, what's up with the parables? What do these mean? And Jesus stops in verse 10. So if you look with me in, uh, in, in Mark 4, verses 10 through 12, Jesus is going to give us a, a clarifying statement about the purpose of the parables. Um, but it's, it's also a, a, a statement, unfortunately, that we need to clarify before we begin. Mark 4, 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parable. So that, and here he quotes from Isaiah, They may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand. Lest they should turn and be forgiven. So what is the function of the parables? What's the function of the parables? Well, in verses 10 through 12 here, Jesus is asked, why are you teaching in parables? What is, the, what is this parable, the parable of the soils? What does this mean? And he's sort of, I think, I, I think a little bit like frustrated with his disciples. I think he expected them to know this. But he answers the question. Now, his answer, unfortunately, has created confusion. Uh, even amongst famous theologians, some have argued that the purpose of the parables was to confuse and deter, sort of leave out the outsider. Jesus' disciples, they're the inside, they're the, they're the inner crew. Um, they're going to know what the parables are about. To everybody else, their goal is for them to just sort of leave confused. Now, again, this, I've seen textbooks with this in it. I, like, there's a long history of this. But if we stop and think about it, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> if there were some things that Jesus wanted the crowd to know, uh, or to not know, and his disciples to know, he just wouldn't say it to the crowd. I mean, Jesus' whole purpose was to be a blessing to all nations. We see it, uh, we see it in the promise to Abraham. Uh, it's it's Jesus' own like, stated purpose. Um, it, he's, he's trying to be a blessing. He's trying to proclaim the good news. Why would he leave some peoples excluded? Within rabbinic Judaism, the rabbinic Judaism of Jesus' day, parables functioned to clarify to the listener. 
They were to illustrate the meat, like what the rabbi meant. Jesus, as a rabbi, almost a third of his teaching um, is in parables for this purpose. But uh, but it's even deeper than that. The, the rabbis saw parables more than just as more than just illustration. But a good parable functions to force a response from the listener. No one should walk away from a good parable going, "Huh, that was interesting." No one should walk away from a good parable saying, um, well, I, I feel sort of neutral about this. No, no, no. A parable functions to force us into a decision. To force us into, like, do I agree or disagree? Am I with Jesus or am I not? So that's what Jesus' parables do. They force the hearer mentally and emotionally to respond to the meaning of the parable. So why does Jesus use this quote from Isaiah? Well, remember Isaiah. Isaiah is coming to his to Israel. He's coming before the Babylonian captivity. He's coming in the midst of Israel's sort of rampant rebellion, injustice, idolatry, sin reigned. And Isaiah says to God, God, like, like, I'll go. Let me go. Let me go speak to my people. And this uh, uh, and this quote from Isaiah 6. means to Isaiah that God says, look, you're going to proclaim the word. You're going to proclaim the gospel. You're going to, you're going to rightly prophesy. This is, uh, this is sin. This is righteousness. Stop sinning. Do righteousness. Believe in God. Abandon your idols. But look, they're going to hear and understand and not obey. They're going to hear and understand and reject you. They're their ears are going to be fat with the word of God, and yet they are going to resist. They will not turn. They will not be forgiven. God sends Isaiah to warn Judah of the destruction that was coming upon them because of their sin. God's desire was that they would repent, but they won't. So part of Isaiah's task was to leave the people of God without excuse. Jesus' parables function in the same way. While many are going to believe in Jesus, there are going to be many that reject him. And Jesus wants to make sure that there's no excuse. They're going to understand exactly what Jesus is about, what he's calling them to, what he's asking from them. They're going to have to make a conscious, purposeful choice. So, Jesus uses parables. So, Mark chapter uh, chapter 4, verses 3 through 9. In verses 1 and 2, it says, The crowd was so big, Jesus gets onto a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, it's a sort of medium-sized lake. Some people see it. I, I love taking students there. Some people see it and they go, whoa, this is huge. Some people say, whoa, this is tiny. I thought a sea was massive. So there's a, a, a medium-sized lake. It's surrounded by hills. Um, and on those hills are farms. Okay? So here's Jesus. He's on a boat. The, the hillside goes up. So there's sort of a natural amphitheater effect in many spots here around the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus is on the boat, giving himself a little bit of distance from the crowd that's pressing in on him. He wants to teach. And he says, listen. Behold, 
Look, a sower went out to sow. So a farmer. Now look, rabbis love to use pictures, to use pictures that can be seen in the world around them. So it, it seems likely to me that Jesus is sitting there, he's got this massive crowd around him, and he looks off, and there in the distance is a farmer out sowing his field. So he says, look, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it out, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil, and it produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30, 60, and 100 fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this is where his disciples stop him, or at least uh, we get a stop in the text and a sort of side conversation, what's this about? And Jesus is sort of uh, frustrated with them that they didn't get the parable. He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand any of the parables or all the parables? For you know the secret of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He says, you're already following me. You know. How can you not get this? So he explains. He says, the sower sows the word, literally the Bible. These are the ones, uh, and these are the ones along the path. The seeds that fall on the path uh, where the word is sown, uh, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. Ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, uh, and uh, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when, uh, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are uh, the one, uh, and others are the ones who are sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for uh, for uh, for other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who were sown on the, uh, on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 full. So here, the sower is Jesus. Uh, it's God. It's uh, Jesus. It, he's the one doing the teaching. He's the one calling people to himself. In, and in a way, we as as uh, people who share the gospel, people who have the responsibility to communicate the gospel to our children, um, to our friends. We sort of share in this sowing, but ultimately the sower is Jesus. The seed is the word of God, is like literally the Bible. It's the teachings of Jesus. And here's the critical piece. The soils are us. 
The soils are the people who hear the word of God um, and their varied responses. Now, I love taking students to Israel, and we'll, we'll find a spot in Galilee, we'll get, it, we'll, we'll get off the bus, we'll walk out into a farmer's field. And many of these fields are very, very similar to the way they were 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time. The fields are small by comparison, um, by, by sort of our standards, um, the, the soil there is really rocky. Um, uh, it just, every year, more stones sort of pop up out of the soil. It's really sort of, sort of bizarre. So what the farmers did, again, their field is sort of, uh, uh, the, their allotment um, uh, is, is right next to someone else's. So they take those stones. Well, what do you do with all these stones? Well, what they would do is they would build stone walls, stone, uh, uh, yeah, stone uh, uh, fences between their field and the, and the field of their neighbor. So um, one of the things that's vital in the life of the ancient Israelite farmer is you've got to prep your soil. You've got to go, you've, every year you've got to go and pick rocks. Maybe you do it in the fall after you've harvested. Maybe you do it in the spring before you plant. Maybe you do it both. You've got to go, you pick rocks. You line those rocks up uh, and add to your wall. You secure your wall. Uh, that, that separates your field from your neighbor's. Now understand, you might have a house in town and then you have to walk out to your field. Well, to get to your field, you may have to walk through your neighbor's field. Well, you're not just gonna go stroll through the middle of their field, right? Well, that'd be terrible. You'd destroy loaves and uh, loaves of bread for them for the coming year. So where do you walk? Well, in these farms, along that retaining wall, along that stone wall, you would have a little path. It's the place where you didn't really plant seed, or where seed certainly didn't grow, and you would walk along that path. And so we'll go find a field like this, and we'll go stand out in it, depending, depending on the time of year. Maybe there's grain in it, maybe there's not, maybe they're harvesting, maybe they're, uh, they're planting, whatever, and we'll, we'll stand there, we'll read this. And you can see it. You've got a path, you've got You've got crops, you've got stone, and look, there's more than a dozen varieties of thorn and thistle bush native to the promised land, native to the land of Israel. So out of that stone wall, in that place that isn't cultivated, what do you have? You have weeds, you have thorn and thistle. So what we have is a sower, what we have is a, in, of a picture of like everyday life for these Israelite farmers. And Jesus says, look, imagine, imagine I'm the sower and I'm sowing among you the word of God. But he's, the question he's asking his audience, the challenge he's making is what kind of soil are you? Are you one in hearing the word of God? Satan comes and immediately takes, uh, takes the word away. Is it, is it when you hear the word of God, is it in one ear, out the other? Maybe there was some terrible experience. Maybe you're just skeptical. Maybe, uh, maybe you have trauma or hurt um, and you just want nothing to do with the word of God. Essentially, like, like this is a description, like look, maybe this is you. Maybe you just don't believe. Maybe you've refused to believe. Next is the, uh, what, he, what Jesus describes as the rocky soil, the rocks. These are those who hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, but because they have no root, uh, as soon as it gets hard, as soon as life gets hard on account of believing in the word of God, they fall away. And uh, is this us? Is this where we're tempted? Is, it, is the pandemic shaking our faith right now? Is 
Someone giving you a hard time about being a follower of Jesus? Are we tempted to walk away because we haven't invested in prepping the soil? Maybe no one's prepped us. Maybe we've been taught that Christians are always upbeat and positive, and right now we don't feel upbeat and positive. Maybe, we've see, maybe the example shown us or our own natural inclination or our expectation is that we worship God when things are good and easy, but when things are bad and hard, that means God's not faithful. That means I'm going to do whatever I want. Third type of soil, third type of listener, is the soil full of weeds. He says, these folks hear the word of God, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it produces uh, and, it, uh, and it proves unfruitful. Notice he says, look, you can hear the word of God, you can believe it, it can take root, and yet the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things can choke out the word so that it doesn't bear fruit. This struggle is real, right, saints? Especially in a nation as prosperous as ours. Are we striving for a socioeconomic status that leaves us so anxious that we burn out and don't have time for God? Are we fronting like we've made it, forcing ourselves to like, like work seven days a week, uh, way too many hours, just to try to keep up the facade like we've got it? Are we leaving church early so we can make it home in time for kickoff. That's a, that's a, central, that's a central time zone problem, maybe a West Coast time zone problem, maybe less so here. Are we so committed to a college dream or a vision of manhood that for our sons or even our daughters, we miss church for years because they've got club sports practices? Are we committed to a work life of lying and cheating just like everyone else, but don't worry, I'm gonna stop just as soon as I get that next promotion? Do our hours on Netflix and Hulu and uh, Prime and uh, Disney Plus way outweigh our time with Jesus? Does our desire to chill outweigh our love for God and love for others, our seeking justice, lo loving mercy, and walking humbly? So we come to the last sort of soil. He says, and well, and then there's the good soil. But then there are the, the seed that's sown on the good soil. These are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, hundred or a hundred fold. Now look, saints, you know, I, I think, like I'm not a farmer, but I know one seed, one seed of grain doesn't produce 30, 60, 100 um, uh, 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 new heads of grain. Just doesn't. So maybe, so, so we have here, Jesus is, is being, is being maybe, maybe the, the crowd sort of giggles a little bit here, but I think they get his point, right? Good, like the word of God on good soil 
Hearers who are receptive, who not only hear and understand, but believe and obey, will bear fruit. And like, so like that, that one seed becomes a dozen seeds, which, which become dozens more seeds. There's that multiplication that soon one life committed to Jesus, committed to being like Jesus, committed to the word of God, suddenly spreads and more life 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 and more life, and more life is impacted and now bearing fruit on account of that one seed. But maybe it's also that the word of God produces fruit in us sometimes wildly disproportionate to like who we were before we encountered the word of God. And wildly unexpected. So what is it that this good soil bears fruit? What kind of fruit is it? Well, let's, let's take a note from the Apostle Paul, right? Galatians 6. What is the fruit that God's word, God's spirit produces? Well, the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit that the word of God ought to produce in our hearts and our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Saint, look, if that's not the fruit in our lives, what kind of soil are we? So here's what Jesus is asking our, his audience. Here's what Jesus is asking us. What kind of soil are we going to be? Saints, what kind of soil are you? If you're sitting here this morning, we'd love to talk to you if you're one who says, look, I just don't believe. We'd love to have that conversation with you. Maybe you're one who Life's hard right now, and you're struggling to hang on to God because it feels like you've got no root. Maybe there's all sorts of cares and worries and other things that are pulling you in all sorts of different directions. Saints, we want to be good soil. Do you? Church, this is what our PSA teams are about. They're about prepping the soil in our community. We cannot be a church that in various ways and by various means says to the brothers and sisters in our community who are poor, poorly clothed, lacking daily food, we can't be a church that does what, uh, what James admonishes or uh, uh, warns his community that, that we can't be a church that, that walks around saying, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things that they need for their body. James says, what good is that? We have a responsibility church to address the trials and tribulations, the worries and the cares 
within our community as a church family and without. Because that's a means of prepping the soil for God's word. No, look, look, saints, like, think about this. Think about this, right? No farmer sows without first prepping the soil. And no farmer prepares the soil without then coming back to sow. How insane would it be to walk into your backyard and start throwing, like, like seeds of, of, of grain or corn or whatever, hoping that it's going to outfight the grass and the crabgrass and the, and the weeds uh, and somehow like your backyard's going to turn into like a field. No, that's crazy. You wouldn't do that. Nor would you till the ground, prep it, fertilize it, and then go, no, I'm not going to sow any seed. Jesus, what we've seen in Jesus is Jesus is going. He's healing the sick. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to feed the hungry. The leper is cleansed. The dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them. Like all of that works together. He preps the soil and plants in that prepared soil the word of God. So what kind of soil are you? Are you prepping or being prepped to receive the word of God? Are you in a discipleship relationship that someone older and wiser than you can encourage you and prepare you and help you navigate the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things? Do you have someone that can hold you up and encourage you in the midst of tribulation and persecution? Do you have someone that you can talk to about your doubts and fears? Since we're not meant to do this alone, we're meant to live in community. We're meant to be part of a bigger kingdom. And are you, are we, prepping the soil and sowing the word in our community, in our neighbors? And what's hit, what hits me harder, I think, on harder every day is in our children. Again, look, saints, it's not enough for us to prep our children to, to hear the word of God and then leave the responsibility of communicating the word of God to someone else. Nor can we, uh, uh, so we, we must do both. Nor can we just like hand them a Bible or read them Bibles. We've got to prepare the soil. We've got to hear their concerns. We've got to hear uh, uh, their desires. We've got to listen to them in their doubts and their struggles so that the word of God will be planted and produce fruit. So what kind of soil are you? Now, next in the passage, looking at Mark 4, 21 to 25, he gives us a series of illustrations about how God's kingdom is meant to be seen. And we're going to address that next week. We're going to skip that from now. And we're going to move to, uh, to, to verses 26 and 27. And here Jesus is going to double down on this idea of good soil. He says this, Mark 4, 26 to 29. And he said, the kingdom of God, notice, this, this parable is all about the kingdom. 
says the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Again, pointing to that farmer. He sleeps, he rises, night and day, the seed sprouts, it grows, he does not know how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. So notice, like it's not that the kingdom of heaven is like the sower. No, it's like this whole scenario. And this whole scenario is really familiar. People go out, they, they, they sow their field, and they wait and wait, and boom, a harvest. And they don't really know how. Now, okay, we've got scientific knowledge. We know all sorts of, all sorts of things about how plants grow. But the kingdom of God is fundamentally communities of good soil people. People who hear and believe and obey. The kingdom of God. You, you can just imagine there's Jesus on the boat. He's speaking to this crowd on the shore of this lake. He says, look, saints, look around. Those who hear, those who uh, believe and obey, you're the kingdom. So are you, are you in or are you out? Are you joining the kingdom and bearing fruit or are you not? Now he's going to take it a step further. Last parable. Comes in Mark 4, 30 and 30, 30 to 32. And I think we know this one, but I think it's going to push at us a little bit differently this morning, I think. He says this, he says, again, so connecting that idea of good soil now to the idea of kingdom. He says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? I've just said, it's you. It's you who believe and bear fruit. What can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which uh, uh, when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Okay. Weird, I think. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that when planted in the garden grows into a mighty tree. I don't know about you, I'd heard this parable for years, didn't have any idea what a mustard, mustard plant was, what it looked like. Just like, okay, so mustard seeds are really little um, and it get, they get really big, great. Well, I, I was hiking a number of years ago in Israel. Uh, we were down by the Jordan uh, and, and we stop in the middle of this, uh, of this uh, sort of just overgrown area. And my teacher looks and he says, look, here's a mustard plant. Again, the mustard plant being referenced here is not the mustard plant from which we get like French's or Grey Poupon, okay? It's not that mustard. Uh, the mustard plant of Israel is, well, this like spindly, stocky weed, 
Okay, it's a, like it's a small bush, it's narrow and tall, and it has a, a yellow, like mustardy looking flower. It's a little flower, um, uh, sort of sort of trumpet shaped. And if you take that flower and you, uh, do you have a pen? Do you have a pen? You're taking notes? Um, if you have a pen, take your pen and just put a dot on the palm of your hand. That's a mustard seed. It's a tiny, tiny little dot. Now, um, it's a, some, some people have gotten all caught up. Well, it's not the smallest of the seed. Okay, look, that is not the point, saints, right? He's saying, look, it's really little. Well, he's God, he shouldn't have, okay, that's not, again, he's not doing a, some sort of like, like farming lesson here. He goes, look, that tiny mustard seed, maybe there's a mustard plant like growing, growing in the vicinity. Maybe he's grabbed it. Maybe one of the disciples, you know, the kids in the audience are like batting each other with it. I, I don't know. Grabs a mustard plant, takes the, takes the, uh, um, takes the seed and he holds it up. He can, the crowd can't see it because it's so little. He says, Imagine taking this seed and planting it in your garden. Now, look, everybody laughed, right? Because it's a weed. It's useless. It just grows into this like little flower thing. Okay, it's not ugly, but it's not nice looking. Like it just grows up in this like spindly, stocky bush. No one would plant it in their garden. But she says, ah, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's this tiny little seed. It looks like a weed, but it's going to grow into an enormous tree. What? This, this weed is going to grow into an enormous tree. Imagine your kid takes, takes a dandelion, you know, it's got all the little, and, and they, they're like, mom, dad, I want to plant this dandelion. You're like, okay, fine. Maybe you have, like, I have a toddler. This is the sort of thing we end up doing, right? You dig a little hole, you put the dandelion in the hole, you pack it down, you water it. You're like, okay, well, well, we'll just have dandelions next year. And, and suddenly, like, oh, next year, you have this tree. It's shocking, right? She says, ah, that's what the kingdom is like. What? But now notice, he says, he says, it grows into a mighty tree that puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. Now, Jesus is, is, is doing something incredible here, totally normal and expected in their world. Not so normal or expected for us. See, Jesus' community, his followers, the people that he's speaking to were people of the Bible, people whose lives were consumed with how do I be faithful to God in listening to, in reading, in devoting myself to, in obeying the commands of the Old Testament? So they knew when Jesus said tree and birds nesting in its branches, their mind immediately went, there's something about the Old Testament happening here. Daniel 4, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 31, all come to mind. Ah, God over and over again, God over and over again in our exile described the empires of Babylon, Persia, Assyria, um, Greece and Rome as trees. And those trees were cut down because of their sin. The kingdom of heaven is like a seed from a weed that grows into a tree. Say what? Ezekiel 17 describes God planting a tree of his own in opposition to pagan empire. God's 
tree, God's kingdom, doesn't look like you would expect, but will succeed where pagan empire fails. So Jesus says to us, saints, are you on board with a kingdom that looks like it's going to lose, that looks like it's going to fail, that doesn't meet the expectations of power and empire in our world? Will you listen and believe and bear fruit? Will you persevere in the midst of tribulation and hold on to and believe in and trust in an empire and a kingdom that doesn't have the sort of success, prosperity uh, that we might expect? See, uh, we've learned this in all sorts of different ways, right? We've learned that success That prosperity comes through power, a power that's often harsh, a power that's often violent. What's the lessons of, uh, what's the lessons in leadership in movies like Miracle or, uh, or um, uh, Remember the Titans where there's this harshness that leads to success. What's the, uh, what's the, the, the lessons of, of our, of, of so many of our action movies from Patton back in the day to our Marvel superheroes that violence and technology um, lead to success and prosperity. Notice the fruit of Jesus's seed. Notice the fruit that comes from the word of God. Notice what Jesus does in bringing his kingdom come, in bringing his will be done. It doesn't come with the sort of prosperity that we expect. It doesn't come with harshness. It doesn't come with the sort of harshness we would expect. We would expect, and I think I got to check myself on this like every day. We would expect harshness to the woman at the well. She's a sinner. And then we would expect political coalition building with the Sadducees, with the Pharisees, with the Zealots. But instead, we find in Jesus the opposite. Here's a woman broken in her sin, suffering, hopeless, maybe maybe her own fault, maybe not. Mercy. And to the power brokers of his day, harshness. Rebuke. Calling to repentance. And look, we expect violence... To be part of nation building, kingdom building, success building. And this is gonna, this is gonna just drive the disciples and his early followers crazy. They, they're, they're not gonna expect it. Jesus doesn't come and build an army. When they try to try to take him and make him king by force, he flees. There's no letting of Roman blood. Instead, the blood that's shed, the violence that that is suffered to build Jesus' kingdom is Jesus' sacrifice of himself to bring an end to sin and death. Jesus' kingdom now, Jesus' kingdom then, defies expectation. It's power and authority and victory and prosperity not in the way our world assumes. Jesus' question to us this morning, 
in hearing the word of God, are you going to go let it go in one ear and out the other? Or are you going to listen? Are you going to obey? And are you going to bear fruit, becoming an ambassador for the kingdom of God, not in harshness, not in violence, in not casting out or castigating, in calling people, in confronting sin, and, uh, and encouraging righteousness with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control? So saints, look, look. In moments of crisis and grief, we often hear it said, this world's not our home. Maybe you've said that to yourself or to friends recently. It's been a chaotic year. And while the sentiment I think is correct, I think we've made a significant error. This world is our home. This world is the good world, the good home that God created for us to be fruitful in, multiply in, to rule over as his representatives made in his image. The problem is we rebelled against God, our king. We rebelled against God's kingdom. So perfect there in that little garden, that little home and set up for ourselves a rival sinful kingdom. This world is our home, but saints in Jesus, this kingdom is not our kingdom. This kingdom is not our home. And Jesus is calling you, come back to my kingdom. Come back and hear like God's call to us as Anacostia River Church and hundreds and thousands of churches in neighborhoods near, uh, near and far around our country and around our world are little outposts of the kingdom where his word is preached his word is heard his word is obeyed where healing and redemption are found and where disciples make disciples that that healing that word that redemption that discipleship spreads from the four corners of the block to the four corners of the globe This kingdom, whether you're here in the United States or in, in uh, Zimbabwe or Texas or wherever, wherever you're viewing from, this kingdom is not our kingdom, saints. There's a greater kingdom with a better king, a king whose throne is secure, and he's calling us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So in all we do, in all we do, the word of God must take center stage and it, it is going to produce in us love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And if it does that, it's going to bring healing and people are going to want to know. So, look, saints, in whatever we do this week, in whatever we do this month, in whatever we do this year as families, as small groups, as a church community, like God is calling us 
to bear fruit, to grow his kingdom, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done in Anacostia, in the DMV, in North America, and South America, and Europe, and Asia, that the world would know that he is God because of us. So if we're going to do that, one, sign up for a PSA group. If you're not in a small group, and I know like 2020 has been crazy, get in a small group. If you're looking to be discipled, reach out to the church office. We would love to set you up with someone who, uh, who, um, uh, who can pray with you and encourage you and read the Bible with you. Look, Jesus says, he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. He says, good soil has the word of God sown in it. So would you, by yourself, it's better in community, with your roommate, with your best friend, with your significant other, with your wife, with your uh, or husband, with your kids, commit to reading a gospel every month for the next year. Four gospels, read each one three times, starting now, going through next October. Saints, the word of God doesn't return void. It will, in your life, produce fruit 30, 60, 100 times anything you could expect or imagine. Jesus is calling us. Will you hear and believe and obey? Will you trust in his kingdom come? Let's pray. God, thanks. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for giving us grace that we, that we don't have to wallow in our sin, that we don't have to wallow in, uh, in um, hopelessness, that we can have hope. Hope in a good king and a good kingdom who's coming to save the world. God, when you come back, may we be found faithful. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.